0: Welcome to How Do We Solve It?, a show about the problems American communities face today and the changemakers solving them, empowering you to solve the problems in your community. Brought to you by the Institute for Community Solutions. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. All right, welcome to another episode of How Do We Solve It? I'm your host, Dan Johnson, Executive Director of the Institute for Community Solutions, and this is the podcast that helps you address the most pressing problems in your community interview nonprofits and experts around the country uh, to talk about how to address these problems. So if you're interested, tell your friends to watch and subscribe to the How Do We Solve podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are sold. All right. So uh, rolling into today's show, this is a very exciting show because this is the kickoff of our community justice series. Um, The Institute for Community Solutions has been looking into the challenges that communities have faced with their justice systems over the past two years. And uh, we found some pretty shocking statistics. Things like the first year recidivism rate for the United States is 44%. That's in the first year that 44% of those convicted of a crime will commit another. Um, If you ratchet that up to about seven or eight years, it gets closer to 80%. If the justice system is supposed to be helping people resolve disputes and repair harms, At the end, there's supposed to be a resolution. It's not delivered. The promise of a speedy trial is uh, that you should be able to get a quick resolution to your problem in our courts. Uh, And yet the average wait for a uh, justice case in in this country is about five months. And that's just for a plea deal not to mention actually getting a trial and a jury. Uh, and in that time, the victim waits for justice and the offender may have effects like uh, not being able to drive to where they want to go or maybe even losing their job because of the restrictions placed on them pre, uh, pre-trial. Um, <clears throat> and of course, this leads to a, while our institutions aren't particularly trusted, The courts have a special place with only 30% of the American public actually trusting the courts to be fair and objective and actually deliver justice. There's a crisis for an institution that relies on uh, the trust in the institution to do its job. Uh, Alexander Hamilton said the courts have neither the power of the sword nor of the purse, they simply have trust. And they don't have that, the American people and you know since trayvon martin's shooting in florida there's been a lot of focus on reforms in the justice system uh, but one reform that has really not been looked at is community solutions to justice there are almost 200 nonprofits around the country today that help people resolve harms and repair disputes outside of the justice system and while there are limitations to these community solutions to justice they may not deal with murder or really high-level theft cases, or things like that, and they may find it difficult to deal with cases where uh, one of the parties just wants revenge uh, instead of a resolution. These organizations handle about 600,000 cases per year and have shown off incredible data on lower recidivism rates, on reduced wait times, and really on an overall increase in the perception from both sides of this system being. And today, I have the pleasure of talking with one of those organizations, uh, which is the Restorative Justice Mediation Program. I always say project, and I think I got it right this time. It is the program, right? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. I have Ian Ragsdale and Johnny Williams. I think I got that right.
1: Shanny, yes.
0: <laughs> Shani. I have Ian Ragsdale and Shani Williams from the Restorative Justice Mediation Program. Super happy to have you guys on How Do We Solve It. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you.
1: Thank yeah, you for having
0: us. Awesome, awesome. So talk to us a little bit about how you got into this work in the first place. I mean, this is especially outside the justice system, where most people don't even think there is anything. Uh, how did you guys get involved in this kind of work um, as you know, individuals?
2: Okay. Um, I'll go first. I uh, went to law school with the um, kind of pre-intention of becoming a mediator, getting involved in ADR, and I took the civil litigation. Which for our
0: audience is alternative dispute resolution.
2: Yes, yes, alternative dispute resolution, which is mediation, arbitration, um, even pre-mediation settlement conferences kind of fall into that category. I was really intrigued by that after working in a previous industry where I got an opportunity to witness mediation in practice and see how quickly it could um, resolve uh, disputes and get things back on track um, in a business sense. Um, But in law school, I participated in a human rights program where I started to learn a little bit about um, the mass incarceration problem that we have here in the United States and the school to prison pipeline. And so uh, when I graduated, I was looking for a program that I could do pro bono work in as a mediator and uh, use, utilize my law degree in a way that could give back to the community and impact that um, school to prison pipeline. So I found this program, which was started here in San Diego County in 1993 um, by a woman named Pearl Hartz, who was a. Retired um, Mennonite minister, and she just started off by trying to help people in her own community resolve disputes. And when the victim uh, offender reconciliation programs or VORP programs really came about in the late 80s, early 90s here in California, she started one here in San Diego. So we are officially the San Diego uh the the victim offender reconciliation program of san diego county inc and that's how we were created and uh when i came around about 9 years ago we were predominantly involved in juvenile crimes low level juvenile crimes um with restitution like uh vandalism and theft and things like that and over the years uh we've continued to expand and uh we brought shani on in 2000 2000- 19 uh and i'll let her share a little bit about her journey but we were really looking to to reach more spanish speakers we changed our location in san diego county around that time and um we brought her on to really kind of like update our curriculum and uh you want to share a little bit about your background as well so
0: before before she hops in uh, uh, i'm really curious about the mennonite uh, background of our um like you, I'm not sure what your, your religious uh, affiliation is, but uh, what drove, because I, I understand victim-offender reconciliation kind of really came out of the Mennonite community in a yeah. lot of ways. So, so what made them decide, or Pearl in this case, decide to create programs like that as opposed to just sending people through the traditional justice system?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the Mennonite communities, um, as far as and I'm I'm not a, a person of Mennonite background. So um this is my best understanding, but um around that time, late 70s, early 80s, in the Midwest, uh Indiana, um, Illinois, places like that, um, that had Mennonite communities, they were relatively closed communities, right? Um, so not unlike the Maori people in New Zealand that have the council of grandmothers, they tried to handle a lot of things internally. Mm. Um, but there was a particular case where two young men became imbibed after a night of celebration. And uh, I think they destroyed like over 30 mailboxes in their neighborhood, like ran them over with their truck. That and... is, That is a heck of a night of celebration. <laughs> yeah. And so um You know, even though the Mennonite community was relatively closed, the sheriff was called and these young men um, did have to uh, address this um, pretty destructive crime, at least. Um, So my understanding was that they kind of took the community's values into perspective of managing, you know, disputes internally. And they had these young men like go to the door of each one of the people who they harmed. And see if they could make it right, rebuild their mailbox or something like that. So Mm. I think that story is probably one of many, but it's an example of why that community, which was very closed off, embraced this type of way of addressing harms within the community. So it's not really unsurprising that people from that community supported this fork concept in the late 80s, early 90s and started thinking, well, maybe the best person to address a harm that's happened to a victim is the person who caused the harm, and maybe the victim is the best person to answer uh, the question of what would make this right. And so that's really the roots of where our program came from.
0: That's, and- a, that's, that's a really fascinating concept, and that's certainly something we, we saw in the research, is that the, so the, the original reason that the state – was kind of put in play instead of the victim was essentially family feuds so you'd have uh, one family and then you know a a different family either steals from or murders a member of their family and then that family is like well okay screw you guys we're gonna go over and murder a member of your family and then you have this long-standing family feud because it was, you know, one family versus another. And so the idea was, well, if we place the state representing the people in there to uh, uh, mediate this process between these two adversarial parties, then we'll get better outcomes. Um, But certainly we've seen in the justice system that that doesn't always lead to the best outcomes. So what is different about having the victim be at the center of uh, the... the reconciliation if you will or the restoration and how does that change the outcome of case because you would think in some cases victims just want they're angry i mean you know in in my case uh i had a attempted home invasion it wasn't attempted they made it in my house it was a real home invasion home invasion they made it in the house um they uh fired a gun at me um they made it out of the house and uh on one hand, I wanted answers, but on the other hand, I wanted somebody held accountable. So how does placing the victim in the middle of that uh, affect the outcome of the case?
1: Um, I would say, um, kind of going back to what the Mennonites looked at too, is that they saw the conflict as a, a harm to a relationship. Uh, someone you knew, uh, whether it was a community that you belonged to or someone that you actually personally knew, and so I think something that restorative justice does, it brings it back to that concept of uh, reintegrating not just the offender, but the, the victim to that community and repairing that relationship that the the offender and the victim have with the community um, and helping the victim feel part of that community again, whether that, that means actually feeling safe or uh, getting to know what's what's going on in their community, that it's causing crime to happen or it's causing harm. And so I think putting the victim at the center and the offender as part of this process uh, really makes it more personal uh, and and it allows them to to really dig into uh, more of that relationship side of crime rather than uh, the personal side of just looking at it as in this something that happened to someone that needs to be punished.
2: Yeah, Mm. I think that we also as a society, we tend to kind of like demonize criminals or hold them up to some like scary, um, unrelatable character attributes, um, which you can only really do at a distance. And so a lot of times that plays into a crime victim's um, feeling of fear. Around the person who committed the crime, and oftentimes in an encounter through restorative justice type mediation victim offender dialogue, they might realize that the person who committed the crime is not as scary or as intimidating as they once believed them to be. Which I think also takes away from some of that fear and eases mm-hmm. the reintegration into their community. Um, you know, and whether that's just the way you feel getting out of your car, going to the grocery store, or at a gas pump or whether you double check your locks at night, um, all of those anxieties kind of linger. And so oftentimes meeting the person who committed the crime, finding out why, and um, finding out some humanizing information about them might alleviate some of those fears.
1: Yeah, I think restorative processes really allow people to connect on a human level. And Mm -hmm. it allows them to leave a little bit of those labels that we put as society in and some of the stigmas that are carried with that. Um, you know, as an offender and also as a victim as someone that is going to be victimized and that needs to have fear or that needs to be scared
0: so uh how does this actually work if I'm you know say victimized um by you know what type of crime uh am I victimized by um and uh, how does it actually work where you know maybe maybe I'm in a position where I want to know more. I've heard this a lot from restorative justice organizations is like one of the biggest benefits the victim gets is they know more about why the person committed the act. And so, whereas in my case, you know, every time a car door slams or a door slams or something like that, I'm like jump a little bit because I don't know where it's coming from. Uh, in uh, you know, some of these cases, maybe that's not how it, how it ends up. So, can you talk a little bit about the process and maybe give an example for us to compare obviously confidential stuff from names and things like that but give an example of what could have been gone through the traditional justice system but went through the restorative process and had you know a better outcome.
2: Okay. So I think one thing to understand is depending on where you are they may implement the restorative justice process in several different ways. So we have completely non-judicial implementation, which would be a community response to a harm. And this could be anything from, you know, a family dialogue to an intervention to, um, you know, a privately held mediation regarding a sexual assault or something like um, private in nature that occurred between two people then our we elder can
1: elder counsel yeah in community yeah
2: like that. so those are kind of the non-judicial routes um when we're talking about a judicial case or a case for which somebody may or may not be culpable of a criminal crime in the or a crime in the eyes of the state um or criminal act uh we would have pre-adju uh pre-charge which means that the Rather than being charged by the the um, district attorney and have a petition filed and the case being entered into court, it's entered into a restorative justice um, process, which in our case would look like a mediation with two private meetings prior to an actual mediation, whether it's um, live or in or on Zoom or in private caucus, we would meet individually with both participants. Uh, let them share with us uh, their experience and their perspective on what took place. And then we would determine whether or not they're um, in a good place to meet with one another or to address this through the restorative justice process. And that just means that we can't have um, people re-traumatize either the victim or the offender by the process um, if either person is not emotionally ready. Um, so that's the process, regardless. But if we're if we're pre-charged, um, then that person would not be charged unless they violate the restorative agreement or mm-hmm. refuse to meet with the person to discuss what happened.
1: It is um, essentially an alternative to going through the court process. Like the court makes a referral, and they're allowing for a victim offender dialogue to happen in place of the court process to see if they could reach an agreement and potentially. case could get dismissed.
2: And then pre-adjudication would be they have filed a petition and then maybe some facts come to light that concern either the public defender or the DA regarding the relationship between the parties. Maybe their cousins or their partners or um, there's some other existing relationship. They go to school together. They're going to see each other every day after this um, takes place. And they might say, okay, well, We're willing to consider, even though this person's charged, um, deferring the adjudication for some sort of uh, restorative process to take place. Uh, In that case, usually we see um, some sort of um, short term probation that's tied to. um,
1: Maybe informal probation. Informal
2: probation tied to the restorative agreement, but they're still kind of in a position where they have to complete the agreed upon. Um, I guess, conditions that they agree with the victim about before the the charge is um, considered adjudicated. And then uh, we have a post adjudication. So it could be uh, our victim offender dialogues that take place in prisons here in California, um, which have been the subject of a few different mini series and other um, content that you can watch. But those, those dialogues are not mediation at all. Those people may or may not ever be released from prison, but the person, the surviving family member or somebody who um, was harmed by them may want to meet with them anyway, uh, in prison. And and we do cases like that every year as part of a wider statewide program. Mm-hmm. And the goal is really just, um, I guess, reconciliation, um, uh, closure space. Yeah, yeah just
1: give them a space to express um whatever that they've been holding on to whether it's the offender or and also give the victim an opportunity to ask questions you mentioned um sometimes that part of healing that they need is just to have an answer to certain questions uh that may make them feel better like knowing that Um, They didn't break into their home because they were specifically targeted. Uh, Maybe it was just opportunistic uh, and maybe their door was open, Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, That could really alleviate some of those uh, ongoing thoughts that someone might be having in terms Mm -hmm. of the fear and and the harm that was caused to them.
2: Those cases don't officially affect somebody's parole. Um, but we certainly believe that um parole boards um should be allowed to consider whether or not the person sitting across the table from them has has made attempts to reconcile uh with the person who was harmed or the surviving family members of the person that was harmed and um in some instances in in um In our circles, we've seen actually people advocate for the release of the person who murdered their family member um, because they have a now existing relationship with them. And um, so I think that there it's never too late. It's always ideal to have a pre-charge program or a pre-adjudication program, but it's really never too late to um, create the kind of positive and transformational impact that encountering one's victim has on the person who actually caused the harm. And I think that's where we start to see that impact on recidivism rates. And we start to see the effect of um, transitioning from when you cause harm in the community, it just being a nameless, faceless mark uh, to like somebody with a story that's a person um, that has a background like you that can maybe hear some of your the harms you've experienced and the traumas you've experienced uh, as the person causing harm and relate to that. So um, it's really an an incredible process to watch, and I think the statistics really speak for themselves. And we even see that halfway houses here in San Diego, where people are released from prison that implement restorative justice programming as part of their uh, reintegration in the community, are also uh, seeing lower recidivism numbers than the averages. Um, And so that kind of uh, retrospective or introspective impact of knowing what victims' experiences are um, is a really good empathy development tool.
1: Yeah. And something we hear often is, is this process too soft on crime or is it too soft on the person who caused the harm? And um, I would say that it really isn't. It's a lot harder to face someone personally and, and actually hear from them how you've affected them, how uh, your actions are really having a long lasting impact, even in ways that maybe you didn't imagine. Um, so it's it, it can make a much bigger impact than going through more of an impersonal process where someone is telling you what you need to do, what your punishment is. And I think it really creates uh, uh, an opportunity for transformation in that person that has caused the harm.
0: So can you give uh, an example that kind of illustrates how this process leads to these lower recidivism rates that we're seeing and these, you know, potentially safer communities? Uh, you know, what does this process actually looks like? What's a
2: good example?
1: Yes. Ooh, um, we have a lot of examples. Yeah, I would say this, <laughs> the
2: simplest and, but, but, but highly impactful, um, process that we've seen is the direct service as part of a restorative agreement. So we have like maybe vandalism, property destruction. Oftentimes it's like kids break into schools and mess up the school at night or churches and mess up the church at night. You know, like things that kids do that are destructive. Oftentimes that cycle continues until they realize the the destruction. So the direct service of going and cleaning up and making right what you've done and also hearing from the people who were impacted by it, even as simple as hearing from the janitor, what his day was like when he got there and there was glass all over the whole school and why he was concerned, right? So those kind of crimes that we would not see as really serious as adults, they really do impact the school to prison pipeline in a big way. So those juveniles that that go into lockup before they're they're 18 for crimes like that, crimes as simple as that, um, they're 87.5% more likely to be incarcerated as an adult. So we have to think about, you know, whether those, those types of lockups for crimes like that actually condition people to a, a criminal lifestyle and that we may be causing more harm than good. But we can see that the impact of direct service and, you know, being directly responsible for making right that harm has a really, a really good impact. We see high graduation rates um, in our long-term surveys from um, kids that are involved in, in issues like that. Um, on more serious crimes, I would say um, the in, they're really centered around the victim and what their needs are. And so we approach each case really looking at What do you need from this if you've been physically harmed, if you've been defrauded, if you've been, you know, trafficked and used it like what whatever happened to you, what's the best way we can make this right for you? And that's how we as mediators approach the case, Um, because we really see ourselves as a neutral party. And even though we want to see these positive impacts on the criminal justice system and on victims and on the um, justice involved population, uh, we also want to know in each case what's actually going to make it right. And the victim is the best person to tell us that. So you can maybe give some examples of approaches that we've used that are unique for victims.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I can think of quite a few cases where um, what you were asking is just, uh, especially for, for youth, uh, where they may not understand what the impact that what they did has on people, uh, they may just see as like, Oh, it's just, you know, a TV I broke. It was just a classroom. I broke into, um, I can think of a case that, uh, that really surprised me that, uh, really showed a transformation from both sides is, uh, we, we had some, some teenagers just break into a classroom in elementary school and they caused a lot of damage. And during the mediation, we had the principal and we had a teacher, uh, participate. And the teacher actually shared uh, some statements from the kids. These were, I think, I believe, uh, fifth or sixth grade about just being sad and having fears that their safe space was destroyed. And I don't think that the youth that caused the harm really expected that or even thought about, oh, when I'm doing this, I'm actually destroying a fifth grader's safe space to come to school. Um, And then on the other hand, too, um, just having them share a little bit of the struggles that they were dealing with at home uh, really helped also the school because they were actually previous students um, understand uh, that some of these kids are just not acting out uh, because they want to act out uh, that there's a lot going on in their lives. And I think it really allowed them to give them a little bit more support. Uh, and it was cool to see because part of that agreement was going back in and repairing some of those damages. And also uh, part of the agreement was also a, a educational component where they had to uh, have a certain, you know, they had to pass their classes. They have to have a certain GPA. Uh, but on the school side that they also had a responsibility to support them. So that was very cool. Again, uh, these type of processes put responsibility not just on the, uh, on the person that caused the harm, but also on the communities. Like, And how can we support them so that this doesn't happen again, um, which I think is what really makes a difference in recidivism. Feeling supported and not feeling alienated and, and just having a collective uh, agreement that um, lifts people up and empowers them to, to do the right thing.
0: It's not like you're on the outside of our society and you have to fight to get back in. It's you made a mistake and we're here to support you in correcting that mistake.
1: Exactly. Yes, that's the way I see it. Instead of saying in this case, like, we're just going to, um, you know, kick you out of school. Uh, What about we look at things that you may be able to do for us? And then how can we support you in order for you to thrive?
0: And you guys have a, if I remember right from the study, you guys have a right around an 80%. So they do these contracts, if I understand it right. So they, you guys, they sit together in the mediation and then who draws up the contract? Is that you guys? Is that them? How does that work for deciding what the the ultimate restitution is?
2: So it's structured in a way that we recognize the harm we look at what's needed to repair the harm. And then we talk about the future intentions of the parties. All three of those um, sections of our agreement, so to speak, are um, the result of discussion between the person who caused the harm and the person who was harmed. So that's why the agreements are not really standardized in any other way other than their structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Oftentimes, the solutions to the the issues that we encounter during the case, such as maybe food insecurity in a teenager that caused them to burglarize a home or something like that, are addressed organically in that agreement so an example is um a youth uh was offered to do direct service for um the victim of a burglary um and expressed his future intention of wanting to join the military. Um, but his current situation meant that he was struggling to survive and have enough to eat and have a roof over his head. So the victim actually, after he completed the service for his company, gave him a job for the summer um, so he could get on his feet and enlist in the military. We did not. That was not part of the agreement. That was not an expected outcome of the case. It was just something that happened once we created a relationship between the two parties and it extended beyond the agreed direct service. And we've seen that happen several times. So um, the reintegration is really only catalyzed by that agreement. And I think that the participation in that agreement kind of has its own effect that that seems to to carry the restorative aspect of the agreement. And um, we have actually over 90 percent completion rate of the agreements. Yeah. Um,
1: And going back to a little bit of what you know, saying regarding uh, just really hearing what the victim wants, uh, you'd be surprised sometimes it's not about like the money or it's not about the crime itself. Um, It really is just about, again, hearing from them or trying to understand the person that that has caused them harm. So during the mediations, everything really is driven by the parties. We don't suggest, uh, we don't suggest any agreement terms or anything. We just kind of prompt that for them. We uh, we typically approach it with the victim. Um, I ask things like what what's important to you, um, what matters to you. A lot of the times, they they tell me, "Hey, I volunteer for a food bank, and I would really like if uh, the person that caused me harm would uh, come and see." Uh, what other people are struggling with and would help in the food bank uh, as well. So you'd be surprised. A lot of the times, what is important to them is maybe not what we uh, automatically think about. Uh, so it's really important to give them that space. And and sometimes they don't know. During the pre meetings, we ask them what they like to get out of this process and and what they like to see the other person. Uh, do and they may not have an idea, but that's what mediators are there for as well, is to just help them uh sort of go through that, ask them questions about what matters to them, what's important, and and mostly also what the future intentions, what they would like to see this person do moving forward. Um, and that typically helps a lot with with coming up with ways that we can uh with things we can put in the agreement for both parties. Are.
0: Our- are most victims, when you talk to them, are they, are they angry? Are they confused? Are they, cause, you know, you have this, this law and order vision of the justice system where the the victim is just like, let them burn in hell for a thousand years. And and this is what I want. Is, is that typically where they're coming from? And then if, if so, this is kind of a collaborative process. So, How do you get them to say, yeah, this is actually a process I want to participate in?
1: Um, So all of the above, I mean, (laughs) victims have all feelings, right? Uh, But I think what really helps is when I explain this process, uh, people really like to hear that they are going to have an opportunity to really talk about how this has affected them. Uh, And then not just the victims, but support people, right? Anybody that has been supporting them. through through any process they've been going through after this happened to them, uh, also have an opportunity to to talk about how this has affected them. And then also they have an opportunity to ask questions, which is not typically uh, something that's afforded by the court, at least not until there's like a trial and there's a victim Mm -hmm. statement or a parole hearing. Um, So I would say that typically that is something that uh, when people are hesitant to participate in this process, uh, when we talk about that, they tend to to really start opening up to, to mm-hmm. participating. They they really like having that opportunity and just feeling like their voice has been heard uh, rather than just not having any say to what's going to happen with a person that harmed them.
2: Yeah, and I feel like their emotions are going to burn hottest uh, during the pre-mediation consultation, the pre-meetings, as we call them. And it's because we're really trying to create a safe space for them to tell us that they're upset, you know, that what their uh, concerns are, what their fears are, what what uh, makes them the most angry. And in doing that and giving them that space, um, which they may receive that space if a case goes to trial, Um but most of the time, victims are, are not part of the process um, of plea deals that ends most people up behind bars. So a lot of times they're not being given that opportunity, as Shaney said, to voice um, how they feel. And in the pre-meetings, we allow them to do that. And in some types of cases, we might give them one or two or three or four pre-meetings uh, to get through emotionally where they, where they need to be. Uh, Mm -hmm. to get in to get involved in a direct meeting with the person who caused the harm so um, yeah we as as mediators we we allow people that space and I think um, it's something that we're used to is allowing those emotions to to boil over because it's something that's needed I think sometimes for people to sort out how they really feel Um, they just need to be heard
1: yeah and something I've realized over the years as well is that success for these programs is not just measured in in going through the process and having an agreement and having the agreement completed. Um, sometimes success means that we just gave the person that was harmed a space to voice what's going on with them. Um, And sometimes that's all they need. Sometimes we meet with them, especially in uh, maybe more serious cases where there's sexual harm or in cases where the person that uh, caused the harm doesn't admit any accountability, doesn't take any accountability. Um, We still see a a change in the person that was harmed when they are just allowed to, to have someone hear them. They are grateful that someone is asking them uh, how this has affected them, that someone is providing resources for them for whatever it is that they're needing. Uh, and I would call that a success too. And, and sometimes that's all they need. And sometimes they even tell me, I, I don't need to move forward. This is all I needed. Thank you. I needed mm-hmm. someone to truly hear me and I needed a space to to just voice what I'm feeling. Um, and would, I would say that's also a success, just having that restorative process for them.
0: And what about the offender side? So, you know, victims might be going through a lot of emotions, uh, but there's not a lot of light shed on what offenders look at. Obviously, for a lot of them, there's an element of, well, I don't probably have to have a criminal record if I go through this process, depending on, on the process. I'm not sure where you guys are at on that. Um, but, like, where is the offender at after, you know, they've, at least gotten to the point where the system is kind of threatening to take them in Mm -hmm. uh, and then they're diverted to you guys?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think that this process also gives them an opportunity to have um, just some kind of control over what is happening to them. Um, I think Ian says, well, he says it better, but a lot of youth or people feel like life is happening to them and that there's just really nothing they can do. Uh, about that. And so this process just gives them an opportunity to take accountability and to also voice what is going on with them. Uh, Sometimes the cases are not black and white. Sometimes there's a lot more going on. uh, And we're able to give the the offender that opportunity to voice that. Um, And then again, also the people that are around them, because this process, uh, going through a criminal process is traumatic uh, for the offender for the parents, for the support people that are around them. And they certainly don't get time to to voice uh, what they've been feeling or what they've been going through. So they can also do that through this process.
2: Yeah. I think that there is um, a little bit of a lack of accountability to sitting in jail because you've committed a crime against the state and Like, nobody feels sorry for the state. The state's had a lot of crimes committed (laughs) against it, right? And so um, there is a little bit of a laissez-faire attitude about why you ended up in jail, just that you are there and you're doing your time, right? Um, So being accountable to a person, even though it might look from the outside to be a lot less, um, I guess, invasive on your life than being thrown in jail... Uh, It provides something that uh, a lot of times people who are just bouncing through life, who grew up in a traumatic environment and are just responding or really reacting to what happens around them versus responding. And some of those reactions in them up in jail, they're they're not often given an opportunity to take a look at why and that somebody actually cares whether I do something to change that. Um, makes a big difference in their life and that's just accountability and so accountability sounds like responsibility it sounds terrible but people crave it in a way like you know people crave like somebody to to be responsible to or to report back to and it's like it's part of our just innate approval seeking behavior that somehow locking people up just really doesn't trigger that for them um, versus like having them accountable to an actual human being who they harmed, whose life has been changed by their actions. Um, it tends to, I guess, wake that sense of responsibility up in people and definitely not everybody. So I don't want to like, uh, yeah, I don't want to advertise this as some sort of um, one size fits all approach to crime because there are a lot of people out there um, who are, you know, they're dangerous. They have mental health issues that make them dangerous that um, that we see. Um, there's probably not an alternative that our society has for them to incarceration. But for many people, it's life choices like poor life choices that end them up in incarceration for short or even long stays. And for all those people who are capable of, like, really analyzing their behavior, um, this is an opportunity for them to, to make a change. So.
1: Yeah. And I think one other thing really that makes me think about why this process is effective for people to change is because nobody likes to be told what to do. Um, You are a lot less likely to follow through with something that was imposed on you rather than something that you had a say in and that you that really truly came from uh, from your heart. Right. Saying, "Okay, this is what I can do for you. And I truly feel like I'm capable of doing this. Uh, So people are more likely to follow through with something that they themselves uh, propose rather than something that was imposed on them. Uh, But yeah, like Ian said, it is important to recognize that an essential part of restorative justice and for for this to even work is that people that have caused harm do need to take some level of accountability. I mean, in fact, that is one of our few requirements in terms of Uh, Our ability to to do this process with people is that they need to be able to to talk about it and 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 be able to admit the harm. And about what
0: what percent roughly of uh, the of offenders will take accountability? I know that's really broad, but I'm like thinking from the perspective of a county commissioner who's sitting on, you know, a criminal justice commission. And uh, they're looking at, you know, how can we reduce the recidivism rate right here? How can we make people happier with the justice system here? How can we have a safer community? And uh, they're wondering kind of what the limits are to this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those limitations, areas where it may not work as well? And, you know, give us an idea, particularly, I'm really curious if you guys have an idea of you know, roughly what percent of offenders are willing to take accountability and you know is it is it 50% is it 70 is it 20 what
2: mm-hmm. what are
0: we looking at as far well, as the offender side? I think
2: you have to look at gang involvement to really mm-hmm. you know parse that out um mm-hmm. because for a lot of people that commit crimes there are other repercussions or there is a cost um to admitting their involvement in certain types of organized criminal activities Um, If you want to take juveniles, um, I would say there's a very, very small percentage that will hold on to their, you know, 100% vehement denial of involvement uh, through a process like this, maybe one to two percent. I think that um, it's different for police who are you know pursuing a charge but once someone's been charged and they're looking at this as an alternative to something else i think that's that's usually not the big question of whether or not they're accountable right
1: i think it's really hard to know uh simply because they're the majority of people are just not even given the opportunity to be able to take accountability i mean when you go through the court process I would say, obviously, your attorneys tell you, like, don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would say that it's hard to measure that because if you're going through the punitive process and not given an opportunity to to admit harm or your system's not set up for you to be able to do that without causing you more harm. Uh, I don't think that we can like, necessarily measure that. That would be my thought.
2: Yeah, I think we, we've we had a few, very few number of cases um, out of, say, like maybe just under 400 where, where the youth or person involved um, was very, very adamant that they did not do this. And in a couple of those cases, it actually turned up some really surprising results that they actually were not. Um, culpable of the crime and that maybe the person accusing them was actually culpable of a crime. Um, so, and uh, yeah, I just, I want to say that that really is for people that have already been arrested or have already been charged um, or are facing a pre-charge opportunity because I think the police deal with a totally different dynamic than we do uh, when it comes okay. to actually yeah. You know um apprehending someone or getting them to admit to to something that took place, and we really have very- little visibility into that other than the police report um which are often not exactly correct and and people are not telling the truth <laughs> to the police as they're writing their report at the crime scene, and we find that out as well um it's
0: It's, it's almost really interesting because if you're sitting down doing a police interview uh there's consequences to you admitting any involvement in anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if they're sitting down with you, those consequences have kind of already been passed down or at the very least shown to them. And Mm -hmm. so there's there's less of a, a intense pressure to not admit it at that point.
2: Yeah. And if you look at the plea bargaining process, I mean, even if they went through traditional the traditional justice system at that point, they have very little choice as to what the prosecutor offers them. Um, And so I think the biggest accountability issues we've seen are with sexual harms, Um, consent issues and sexual assault, um, like dating sexual assault and things like that. Um, I would say that's the, the biggest number of offenders that
1: have gone through programs
2: so. and seem incapable of still uh, seeing where they yeah. caused harm. Um, so Another
1: thing I've seen is uh, where cases where the youth are willing to take accountability, but the parents are not allowing them to do that. Uh, so maybe mm-hmm. they're in denial or maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I can't speak for their thought process, but it it has been common where. The youth is willing to go through this process; they're willing to grow and accountability. And the parent is just simply not letting them do that, uh, and that—that that is honestly really disappointing to see because it can really hinder their process of uh, just if they're not held accountable, they're probably not going to understand their consequences, and they're—they're they're probably going to reoffend. So,
2: it's not a metric that we measure, but what she just mentioned is actually. The wor- the most consistently worst outcomes that we've seen are with um, youth or young adults who the parent or guardian makes excuses for their behavior. We've seen, mm-hmm. you know, I, I since we don't track that, I can't give you like a statistic, but there's a very, very high probability of them ending up incarcerated. Uh, if their parent mm-hmm. behaves that way after they are arrested for a crime, so. and
1: it's also very likely that the victim is not going to be able to connect with them, or that they're not going to be able be willing to to uh, give some some leeway, or uh, I want to say wants to like really work out something with them because they they just don't want to hear excuses, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah, the, right. unfortunately, that is something that that we've seen.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, talk about the response of um, law enforcement and uh, court authorities, because on some level, you need their involvement. Even if you're, you're taking cases off their hands, you need their involvement on some level, because I assume you guys don't have your own police force. Uh, so if that's not the case, you, what's been the response to your efforts in San Diego by you know the county and the county DA and the sheriffs and police department?
2: So I think um, now you're putting me on the spot uh, because I do have to continue to work with every agency in San Diego um, uh, You know, after this point. And uh, the buy-in from stakeholders for anybody considering implementing a program like this is going to be the most important. I, I would say here in San Diego County, the most consistent buy-in that we've had Over the years, since we've been around for 30 years, has been uh, the public defenders. So, public defenders are oftentimes the ones getting the real story of what happened um, because they're really good at sniffing out, like, you know, somebody who's just saying, Oh, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then they're like, Well, that's not helpful to me. I can't help defend you if you're not honest with me. Right. So, oftentimes in that discourse, they become aware of complicated factors that led to the actual harm that took place, right? Um, So they've been our most consistent advocates. Um, I would say uh, it's seasonal with prosecutors because one thing that everybody who's trying to implement an RJ program needs to be aware of is that um, the stakeholders in a given system, if they're... Uh, if they become control in control of the RJ process, they're going to try their best um, to make it look like the existing system. And so I think wow. that's what we've seen here in San Diego County is that the kind of newest, uh, I guess, restorative justice approach is, um, you know, really just a rebranded um, approach of, you know, juvenile prosecution. And so there are some communities where I think they've really made an effort to make the restorative justice courts look a lot different than um, the traditional court system. But um, in our case, some of those efforts on the prosecutor side have really been indistinguishable from the outsider's perspective from um, the traditional um, punitive justice system. So. I think that that's one of the the drawbacks. Is um,
1: it doesn't help the trust, as you mentioned earlier. Like people don't have a lot of trust in the in the criminal justice system, especially certain communities. So when it looks like that, it doesn't matter how you frame it or how you explain it. Uh, you do wonder what messaging they're getting that they're not willing to even go through that process, um, or they're not mm-hmm. willing to consider it.
2: So community based organizations are able to maintain that, you know, um, integrity in the eyes of the community, usually for a longer period of time or more consistently. Um, but we all face the same issues of, um, you know, we we don't have the budgets to market what we do. So not everyone is aware of the availability. Um, and we don't have the ability to mandate um, certain Um, types of programs be offered to victims so we're at the mercy of Mm. prosecutors and people who are in communication with the victims to even let them know that programs exist and uh, I think that you know that kind of leads into what Shani and her team have been doing more recently which is a lot more outreach and just educating the community about Um, our programs and and helping those different groups of stakeholders to understand exactly what it is that we do, um, because they might want to take advantage of it and just not know it exists.
1: Yes. I mean, although in the past five years, I have seen an increase in buying from stakeholders, Um, even people that have been working in the system, whether it's prisons or as prosecutors. um, I, I am optimistic because I do feel like I have seen more buying or at the very least more interest in actually learning how this process works. Uh, But the truth is it is a constant struggle of educating people, uh, of, you know, again, having that, uh, dealing with that um, um, just problem of people, like, do they know about this? If the prosecutors are aware. And then also just uh, the fact that they have a lot of discretion on whether uh, people have access to this process or not. So I think community buying is extremely important uh, and community awareness. Uh, we had cases where people ask for this, they ask the prosecutor, I want to be able to meet the person that harmed me. And, and I think that is really truly what's going to make a difference uh, in the long run. If people are asking for this, then they'll probably be more willing to to refer the cases.
0: So yeah, let's, let's dive into that in, in the last little bit here and get into if somebody wanted to start something similar to restorative justice mediation program in their community. You know, Part of our role is highlighting these programs that work so that other communities can experience some of the same impact that you guys have been able to bring in San Diego. So can you talk a little bit about you know, what your advice would be to someone who wanted to start something where do you start what are the key things uh you know you need to do and you already talked about maybe a couple of the potholes uh you know things like you want to make sure you have a lot of outreach things like you want to make sure um that you get stakeholders on board uh but talk a little bit about the process of actually starting something like this since you guys have been doing it for 30 years
2: um yeah. <laughs> okay, so every new program usually starts uh, with an opportunity, you know, a uh a relationship somewhere, a uh, a listening ear, somebody who's willing to hear us out and um say okay, well, I think maybe we could do something. Um I would say my biggest advice is start with the low-hanging fruit. Um there's going to be certain Types of cases or situations that maybe um, the DA or the public defender, even your probation department who might even already take volunteers, um, you know, is, is dealing with. And I think having some sort of listening session with some or all of those stakeholders to hear about, okay, what are the types of cases that you're dismissing, but you don't think you should dismiss it because like that might lead to a worse crime later? Or what are the cases that you're sending kids to juvenile hall, but you feel like maybe that's not the best answer for them, um, exposing them to, and, and kind of look for those fringe uh, examples or edge cases, um, just like when you're developing any tool, you kind of need to know what those edge cases are, right? And so I think being willing to help as an organization your local stakeholders with those edge cases is going to be the easiest thing um, to address first. And they may internally come up with their own ideas of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And you might be required to operate in those parameters. But then we've helped train other areas where we train or we've helped train other nonprofits that are serving in other counties where they come back to us and say, oh, well, now they're sending us all these cases and we don't know what to do with it. So there's no way to predict the response. But I think Mm -hmm. to start with something that is, um, you know, that they can compartmentalize, that they can manage and say, "Okay, we might be willing to let these cases go through restorative justice. Mm -hmm. Um, Just be willing to start small and um, be very, very careful about. Uh, the facilitators uh, train and hire people that you can trust to help maintain your um, organization's integrity when they're out in the the community. Um, if we're out there saying we're neutral, um, we need to be very neutral to everybody that we encounter with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really hard because some people are drawn to this work because of a bias towards one idea or another. And um, having them become facilitators where they're required to take all sides into consideration can be a challenge. So finding the right volunteers, I think, and then maintaining those relationships with volunteers, whether the case volume is high or low, maintaining their training opportunities is really important.
1: I definitely agree. And I would also add that uh, in reality, the easier you make it for the stakeholders, the more likely they are that they're going to be willing to, to try out your program. So just Uh, Whatever barriers come up, um, you might have to just uh, eliminate them and perhaps even offer the program without funding at first uh, to get some buy in before, uh, you know, things grow. And like Ian said, I think it really the way we approach it, our jump, I think, is that we really value the case by case basis. So uh, just taking just really impacting uh, sometimes one person at a time. Uh, can make a big difference and can really help in terms of building reputation and, and having results and just really focusing on the quality of services and the facilitators that you have uh, rather than wanting to start big and not being able to to meet that capacity mm-hmm. because a lot of things happen in the process and and it's very, really unpredictable. And even, you know, four years later in dozens of cases, I would say every single one is different. So just being willing to to mm-hmm. look at it that way.
0: That's and that's something that uh, I think I'm really taking from you guys is this individualized approach that, you know, maybe as a society, when someone is harmed, instead of treating that like an assembly line where everybody lines up, gets their attorney, goes to court, and then they figure out and they hand down the exact same uh, restitution pretty much every single time, even to the point of mandating it, that you have to hand down this Mm -hmm. restitution every single time. Uh through mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, that maybe there's a lot of hope for an in- more individualized uh, approach uh, to you know helping helping repair the harms that have been caused um, so uh, uh, how can if people uh, you know want your help, can they contact you? Do you guys kind of offer that kind of thing uh, in setting up a new program and uh, if people want to help you? in the work that you're doing in San Diego. Um, how can they do that? You know, we have listenership across the country. So, you know, what can they do uh, to help?
1: Um, I think even the simplest thing would be to learn about restorative justice, to learn about victim-offender dialogue, uh, To vol- you can volunteer as facilitators uh, in different programs and just be open to uh, to learning and then being open to that process uh, to the talking about it with people, you know, uh, and, and especially if they're sta- stakeholders and you have a friend that's an attorney and you can uh, explain that to them. I think that that's a uh, low level, the way that you could start doing that type of work.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, you can always support us by donating at, uh, at www.sdrjmp.org. And if you're an organization that that needs help starting a program, we offer um, curriculum packages and training packages and consultation and Shani and her team can fly out and meet your team and um, take them through the process of what it takes to set up a program like this and what victim offender dialogue looks like. It's typically a 20 to 30 hours of training Um, which incorporates some knowledge of the way um, the criminal justice system works uh, in that specific region or um, municipality uh, and combining that with uh, a mediation um, toolbox so that people understand how how do I operate as a neutral, as a facilitator in cases like this? And um, what are the communication skills that you need um, as well as um, really kind of what are those active listening uh, skills that are particularly important when dealing with the aftermath of a crime or a harm against a person or relationship. So, um, yeah, we offer that kind of training. And we're also just here. You can give us a call and ask us questions if you're thinking of starting a program, but you don't have funding yet or you're just thinking of, you know, wh- what do I do? Um, we'd be happy to help you. We get calls like that every week. Um, And we're always trying to, um, I guess, uh, encourage others to start programs like this. And we experience challenges here in our own county as well. So it's not like we live in a bubble here in San Diego County where everyone accepts RJ programs and it's, you know, a prolific Mm -hmm. part of the criminal justice system. We experience some of the same challenges that any new uh, organization might might experience anywhere else.
1: So. And it's a collaborative process. Um, I think one thing that we can support each other with as well is just connecting. And if you have a successful program, if you've done this in other parts of uh, the country, we want to hear about it. We want to hear about the challenges and the success stories and, and see how we can collectively uh, improve those programs. And also, the most important part, I think, really is to gather some data as well. If we can all show that these programs are working, uh, that these programs are an option, uh, then we can have a complete package to to mm-hmm. show stakeholders in other parts of the country or in our own jurisdictions uh, to be able to convince them to, to be more open.
0: And Johnny yep. gives me the absolute perfect segue. Uh, which is, of course, you can uh, well not only will we include links uh, to uh, RGMP and their, their, their uh, resources in the show notes, but also if you want to see the case study and the data uh, of how RGMP is impacting San Diego, you can download the Community Solutions to Justice report, uh, which uh, by the time this episode uh, has been released, will be out and was released on October 10th at the Institute for Community Solutions website. Uh, which literally just put it into Google because the URL is way too long. Uh, Thank you guys so much uh, for listening in to another wonderful episode. And of course, uh, to kick off the Community Solutions to Justice series, lots more organizations coming your way, uh, talking about various approaches to community justice in their communities. Stay tuned and we'll see you next episode. Thanks, Dan.